Well, it might seem a little early as it's only January, but as of tomorrow, BC Parks Reservation Service will be moving to that four-month rolling booking window that's for front country and back country reservations. So kind of a big deal for anybody who wants to book those spots when it comes to enjoying the great outdoors. Joining us to talk more about what this means is Sam Waddington, owner of Mount Waddington Outdoors. Sam, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Jill. Uh, can you tell us a little bit your take on this as far as the, the reservations that are going to be opening up and what this means, kind of this four-month rolling period compared to what we saw before? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels far from uh, camping season at the moment. I think for most of us, as snow sort of fills the province of British Columbia. But uh, but it is um, a move that, that I'm certainly welcoming, and I think a lot of outdoor recreationalists are as well. And and that's that, you know, the challenge was you'd, you'd try to book your campsite in advance and, and, you know, maybe you would book it exactly at the far end of that two-month booking window. But, you know, eight weeks, ten weeks is pretty tight to pull your family together to get your, your plans in, in place to be able to leave and, and head across the province potentially to a campsite. So the four-month the four month window is, is awesome, and that's why it's been pulled back to January instead of its opening previously, like last year in March, so that the opening dates are the same. We're still only able to book a month to two months into that first part of the camping season on opening day, um, just because most campsites don't open uh, for the season until March or April. Um, but it but it'll give us a little bit more heads up uh, time to, to to make that happen. Uh, so, and it does sound like this is listening to people or, or addressing some of the concerns, perhaps that were brought up by what you just mentioned as well by that those shorter windows. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, users are going to provide that kind of feedback, you know, those things where they feel, um, you know, these are these are the, you know, the, the hitches to their travel plans, right? Oh, the, the, these are challenging pieces super far in advance is better. Um, we most most of us plan our trips that way. But I guess one of the one of the challenges I have with this announcement is it's not the announcement I was looking for from the minister, you know, and I think that a lot of recreationalists would would say the same. You know, we've seen a 200% increase in, in um, backcountry and um, frontcountry usage in BC parks in the last 10 years, 200%. And yet we have not seen a 200% increase in staffing and in resourcing and in trail maintenance and park standard increases. So, you know, we continue to make these um, changes that make it the user experience better, but it's increasing the number of people in the backcountry. And we have the same number of park staff just about maintaining that same asset. And so, you know, these are some of the challenges. I think we all welcome changes to the thing we love the most, and BC Parks is one of those things for many British Columbians. But, you know, we would like to see some, some real concrete dollars and, and, and investments and, you know, effort from the minister and, and the ministry going into the things that I think matter the most. And where would you like to see that focus then, with the staff numbers not going up, with that not going up anywhere near matching the increase, like you said, in people who are out and enjoying the outdoors? What areas do you think need the investment? Where would you like to see it go? Well, the majority of the new um, increase, well, the increases are happening nearest to people's doors, right? These are the parks we play in closest to urban centers. So that would be the lower mainland, the Sea to Sky Corridor and the Okanagan. Um, not to say those are the most important parks in the system, but they're certainly the heaviest used. And, um, and you know, we have park staff who haven't been in the field, you know, in weeks by midsummer's point, um, which is when they should be in the field the most, because they're, they're just managing the office and administrative functions of, of their role because they're stretched so thin. So, you know, the average user goes to a BC park, they have a great time, and then they head home. But those of us who, 
you know, commercially operate there and, and are in parks, you know, on a, on a daily or weekly basis, um, you know, that lack of staff support, that lack of presence is, is very real. So, you know, those trail maintenance dollars, um, you know, th- those staffing pieces where staff have the opportunity to, to provide the kind of parks role that we used to have park rangers do, you know, they would provide an orientation to folks who are new to BC parks. Um, you know, they would, they would talk about the flora and fauna and they would certainly work to do the secondary function, which is what BC parks is here for. Number one for recreation, but number two is for conservation and making sure that we're not trampling on, you know, sensitive habitat, um, through, through the impacts of just higher use case. So, you know, I do think we need to have that um, that conversation, and I hope that's the announcement that's coming next from the minister. Are there also concerns or issues where we've seen things break, whether it's because of overuse or because of nature, things like bridges that have been swept out or, or parts of that park infrastructure where it's just not getting fixed because of that lack of investment? Yeah, for sure. And so... Um, Nobody had predicted, I don't think, the, the you know, the huge atmospheric um, rivers and some of the massive challenges that we saw, especially on the south coast that hit tons of our parks very, very hard. Um, Chilliwack Lake Provincial Park, but Cultus Lake Provincial Park saw just inordinate amounts of damage during during those events. And, and full, you know, uh, kudos to BC Parks for the rate at which they went in and, and fixed some of these challenges. But it speaks to the challenge of you know, those capital investment dollars and those maintenance dollars and just keeping up with the changes that we're seeing um, in, in impact. So those those environmental effects are not going to get any less severe. So we're going to have to get ahead of this problem. But, you know, small things can also increase. You know, people often think, well, we can't build new bridges everywhere to, you know, <laughs> handle that one in a thousand year flood. And, and they're correct. But what we can do is we can get a BC Parks worker or a contract staff person out there clearing you know a ditch on the edge of a trail so that when water does flow it flows off the side of the trail rather than down the middle of it destroying it for the early part of the season you know there's small things that just take boots on the ground and you know as sophisticated and um you know as technologically advanced as it seems like so many of these aspects of of um, governance are in the provincial system the backcountry is still the backcountry unless you're out there with a shovel um, you know, on a on a hand walk trail, then then there's uh, there's not much else you can do about that. There's no machinery that's going to supplement just boots on the ground. Right. And what is your, your response then, when you, even looking at the release from the the BC government from the ministry on the rolling system and the fact that they've changed the the reservation system? That release also includes information saying that more campgrounds are being added to the reservation service for the upcoming season. Uh, things near a, a park near Chetwind, near the Kingsgate border crossing, Allison Lake Park near Princeton, and also saying that uh, it also says that people need to be prepared to be self sufficient for these backcountry experiences, whether it's paddling, uh, portage, taking gear across. How much of it is we're going to see even more park space now included, more people, but people are going to be on their own? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's it's a challenge. We, you know, I think... I think we as British Columbians would like to fancy ourselves as, you know, advanced backcountry users and, and you know, we have a culture of, of backcountry use, but that's not the new user. You know, the new user to BC Parks is um, new Canadians, you know, folks who are out there for the first time. And, and you're seeing that in some of what BC Parks is prioritizing with um, front country campsites, um, cabins, you know, um, uh, accessibility campsites, these types of things. So, so when we see these increases and we don't see the increases from a staff perspective 
Um, you know, what, what, we're, what we're looking at is people needing to be self-sufficient, but in a way that's kind of a bit of a cop-out, I think, by the province's standards. And, and, and what I mean by that is there are parks elsewhere in the world. There are park systems elsewhere in the world where there would be a ranger checking backpacks, asking folks if they have avalanche equipment with them, asking folks if they have the proper backcountry camping equipment with them as they head into what are immediately severe um, backcountry locations, you know, that have rockfall hazards or climbing areas that have, you know, technical aspects to them. Um, we just saw changes to Bugaboo Provincial Park, for instance, with, with some large rockfall. And anyone who's been in that area has seen users who are not prepared. And that's because there isn't a park ranger standing at the trailhead, just making sure that folks are prepared, right? And that's a very small thing to do, and it would have massive impact to the safety um, and security of our parks, to the user experience. And I'm certainly, um, you know, aware of also the fact that if something does go wrong in those parks, it's volunteers with our volunteer search and rescue that are heading out there away from their families, putting themselves at risk to, you know, to provide a rescue. So I think when we look at this whole system, it, it needs it needs investment in each category, and while I welcome all those positive changes, we just need to make sure we're we're keeping up on all aspects, not just on the ones I think that are forward facing, like the website. All right, well, we'll leave it there, Sam. Thank you so much. As always, great to have you on the show talking about this today. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, happy reservation booking, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us on this January 2nd. Well, as it is a new year, there is also now a promised ban on foreign home buyers. This was a promise made by the federal government. Uh, there was growing pressure to make housing more affordable for Canadians. Still a lot of questions as to whether or not this will help achieve that goal. But as of January 1st, foreign commercial enterprises and people will be prohibited to buy residential properties in Canada for two years in an attempt to cool the speculation that many believe helped propel the country's housing market to unprecedented highs. So what kind of an impact might this have on real estate in BC? Joining us to talk more about this is Doug Gibson, real estate agent with Stillhaven Real Estate Services. Doug, thanks so much for doing this. Hi, Jill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I know you were here just a few days ago talking about what the year might look like and looking ahead. We might still touch on that again as well. But I'm hoping you can also talk about this foreign home buyers ban and if you think it's going to have a big impact on sales or on the market in BC. You know, I don't think it really will, Jill. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that, um, it, you know, there's exemptions right now in, in terms of like Whistler and Pemberton are exempt. And I think that's because they know that a lot of buyers there are from America. I heard that the Sunshine Coast is exempt. So that could actually end up having people come there. But really, from all the stats and, and everything that you look at and, and, and that I was going through, that it's not really had a major effect in, in 2021. Uh, Foreign ownership purchases were only 1.1% of the market, which was down from only about 3% in 2017. So I think there's a lot of sort of hoopla around it and a lot of people annoyed because there's been a change in, in the way that some neighborhoods look. But I don't think you're getting 15 houses on a street and on the west side of Vancouver, they're all empty. Um, but, you know, neighborhoods have changed and, and it has had a, a bit of effect, but I don't think so. I think this is a... a, a one of those things that the government does to make themselves look good. 
Right, because when you look at that number, and I've seen that number as well, the 1%, not a huge part of the market. Certainly, it's not as though we're looking at a huge number of sales that were going to foreign commercial enterprises or foreign residents. Yeah, and actually, what I saw in stats that I was reading is that domestic investors actually account for one-fifth of the market. So, you know, the, the market really got frothy in the last couple of years, and, and people jumped it back in. And, and it, you know, it's hard to purchase in the lower mainland an investment property that actually cash flows, but people will buy it perhaps with a larger down payment to soften that cash flow difference and hold it to get the the lift on it because prices have been going up a lot. So, you know, new builds will have more foreign buyers purchasing it. And and I think really, Jill, a big factor is actually immigration. And now that the the feds have increased immigration to, I think it's 500,000 a year, you know, a lot of people are coming to the metropolitan areas of, you know, Vancouver and Toronto and met, um, the immigrant immigrants that come here, uh, about 23% of them are purchasing. So that's a pretty good chunk uh, of people that are coming to the country that are that are going to be purchasing. So I, I, you know, is it that you see? Is it that it's foreign people that are owning, or is it just is it actual offshore owners? So, uh, you know, again, I, I think the optics are fine in terms of it's it's maybe keeping some of the people out. But I think it's the government seems to like to do lots of little things that seem like they're making a big splash. (laughs) Right. Uh, Is it the type of real estate as well? You mentioned houses and if we're seeing uh, streets or neighborhoods where all the houses are empty or a good proportion of the houses are empty, is it single family homes that we're talking about? Or is it also if we talk about, say, buildings in Coal Harbour where we're seeing towers and high rises where, where the lights never come on? Is it more one bedroom or two bedroom? condos that that are more appealing to people who are buying them simply for investment yeah i think that you know before the foreign buyers tax that came in in 2016 we were seeing of course more and more of this and there was and i think even previous to probably 2010 because i think 2010 in the olympics put us back on the map and and awoke everybody and and i heard from people that have been realtors longer than me that you know the 80 expo 85 really woke up the world to us and there was a bunch of investment then um and we just have a lot of it a lot of immigration so yeah there are there are for sure real stories of places that aren't that are empty but with all of the taxes i mean there are two empty homes taxes applied to vancouver homes right now with the city of vancouver and the province so that you know at least these homes might now be rented out um and uh so there is definitely some places that have this effect but I don't. I, I can't see the government really doing too much more. I mean, two empty homes taxes. I mean, I've had clients that have wanted to, you know, previously they wanted to go away and they couldn't rent their place. So actually, Evie um, creating this non no no more rentals is is actually going to help people rent out their place um, if they if they want to go away for a year or two or they are there you know whatnot or there's there's snowbirds so. There's, uh, Jill, it's so many factors now. I mean, the, the BC regulations have just been getting tighter and tighter and more and more regulations, including, you know, this three-day hold period um, when you have a, an, a, a subject-free deal. So I don't, I don't think so. I think that, you know, you, if you're a form buyer, you know, you can't buy now because they would, they would slap you with the tax or a, or a fine and you'd be forced to sell it. But, I mean, previously, you'd be paying 20%. So unless 
money that was coming in. I mean, I guess an American could do that, thinking that their money had a 30% discount with the exchange rate. And then it with the foreign buyers tax, it was just a 10% discount. But um, our market is is just very uh, undersupplied. There's a lot of properties that need renovations. It's hard to get renovations done. They're very expensive now. So, you know, when you when you have a new buyer, for example, a client, whether they're new and you're looking at properties, you might show them 23. You're not going to see 13 properties. They're going to pre-select and you're maybe seeing five or six that actually might fit their criteria. Right. Well, that that makes a lot of sense. And like you said, too, with the exemptions that are in place with the new rules, the, the different areas, as well as exemptions on specific people as well, it does seem like while it, it sounds like a big move or a big gesture, it, it, the, one of the questions I know that's being asked again and, and what you've brought up is, is this really going to have a big impact? Well, and, you know, I don't think that even before 2016, that East Vancouver homes were the ones that were getting purchased. I think it's true that in West Vancouver, West Side, you know, these multi like seven, eight, 10, 12 million dollar purchases um, were happening. But I have heard as an, another factor is that a lot of money has come out of Hong Kong. So with the, with the Chinese government cracking down on things in Hong Kong, there is something like 20, there is a billions of dollars getting transferred out. So I, I think there might be People who are landed immigrants here or dual citizens or citizens of Canada. Um, I had a lawyer tell me that a couple of years ago that they were seeing a lot. They were doing a lot more transactions and helping people move money. And that they thought a lot of Canadian citizens. And I had that happen this year. I had I had somebody who was a dual citizen um, and they they left Hong Kong. They'd been living here, moved back there. And they're like, no, we want to be back here. So they 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 purchased. So, you know, you have enough of those happening and. It just increases, and that wasn't in Vancouver. It was it was in another city, but um, it's just so multi-factored that I don't think that uh, we're going to see too much happen here. It's the it's it's just like the feds. Even they made some of these first-time buyer programs where you could save a little bit of money here. It was going to be a, a small amount of people that it would help, but it's something that they could put on a flyer saying we did this. Right, that was the the account that you could put money into, or the the specific account to earmarked for the deposit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's great. It's helpful, but it was only going to help a certain, a small amount of people that were that were going to be using that. So, so you know, great that it's helping. But I mean, we'll see. I mean, proof is in the pudding. We could take a look in a year from now and see if maybe if Seashell or uh, Sunshine Coast, you know, real estate had this odd blip increase because I actually heard, and I mean, this is through the grapevine, but I heard that somebody purchased. 20 homes in the Sunshine Coast in around 2019 or 2020 and just as investments. And, and that actually started to really tighten up the market over there because they just purchased these for investments to, to rent out. So rents became tight there and even the market became pretty tight out there as well. Hmm. You mentioned as well David Eby's changes and the rental and, and the the changes. I think one of the biggest ones for Strata is that they will not be able to restrict rentals or that rentals are allowed. Uh, do you Are you hearing from clients or do you think that will make things more attractive or, or are people going to, to, are people not going to want to go into places where there aren't those rules anymore? It's a good question. And I had a good banter with a fellow realtor of mine about that. And I think, you know, it might just even itself out. It might just equate to a zero sum game because you're going to have some people that do will hold on because they've got enough equity out there and maybe make a purchase, use some of that equity as a down payment 
and rent it out. But a, a lot of buyers who are in a one or two bedroom condo, they need to sell that. They need to liquidate the equity to make a purchase for the for the move up market. Um, so I, I think it's a good thing for our rental market. And I think it's a good thing to have in a in a big picture. I think the number of rentals that are coming into Vancouver that may stabilize the rental market and not have it increase will will say to people, I'm actually going to move to Vancouver because I can rent a place now. I'm not going to go to Calgary or other places. And then that person will eventually become a buyer. So having more rentals on the market, I think ultimately will be a good thing for, you know, the housing, the, the housing market in general to have purchasers. So, um, you know, Bruce, it was a Bruce that was on for your show that yes. uh, that I spoke with. Yeah. yeah, he asked me at the end of the show what I thought should ultimately, if I could wave a magic wand or, or make uh, you know make one change. And I said I think we need more townhomes. So we we really need a supply. And and you know what's what's in in shrinking shrinking supply is homes. And if a home gets torn down now on anywhere in Vancouver, you can build a duplex. So that's great. That's increasing supply. But, you know, next door to me is a house that's getting built with a laneway and a suite. So there's two rental units there. However, if you took all, you know, blocks of a whole block um, and we're just able to rent, take it in and make it a, uh, a townhouses, you're creating, you know, three houses could become six townhouses. And that's six families. You make these about 1,500 square feet, three bedrooms. I'd love to see them with rooftop decks. And and you, you then you greatly increase the supply where people can't. It's a hard jump from a two bedroom, sometimes into a duplex or into a house. So that brings it. You know that brings the affordability down. In in North Van, you can get a three bedroom for about one point three, and I think around here in Vancouver, you could start seeing them at around one point one, one point two, which is still a lot of money. But if you make your way up the market from a one bedroom to a two bedroom, and then into that, it's a way easier jump than having to go into a house, maybe a small house, and then you've got a suite in the, in the house, and you just don't have a lot, you're not living in a lot of space. No, it's a, it's an interesting point, and I think one of the questions that a lot of people have as we move forward and see more, more, more and more changes when it comes to policy and those rules. Doug, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, and Happy New Year. All right, Happy New Year to you as well. Well, have you made New Year's resolutions? If so, we are talking about that now, and we'll have some time for your calls coming up a bit later on this half hour. But it's not a huge surprise, I'm sure, that a big proportion of people who make resolutions, they abandon them usually by about March. So what can you do differently to keep those resolutions on track? Professor Scott Lear joins us now, a professor at SFU in the prevention of heart disease. Uh, Professor Lear, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. A a bit of a different topic. I know uh, we've uh, talked to you about uh, other heart disease-related issues and such on the program before, but you've also been talking a lot about New Year's resolutions and why people are often not successful with those. So what do we know at this point? What is it that leads so many people to abandon their resolutions? Well, there may be a, a lot of different reasons, and New Year's resolutions are just like setting a goal at any other time of year, and, and things that um, I would work with with patients in our cardiac rehab program. 
And there needs to be some planning in both defining that goal and then how you're going to go about it. A lot of times people might say, like the biggest New Year's resolutions revolve around health, such as weight loss, exercise more. And then the next ones are around finance, like saving more. Right. And and making goals, I know we've all heard the kind of the, the goals that aren't too, too much all at once and making reasonable goals. So how do you advise people then or what is what would be a strategy that might help in that regard? Yeah. So a common way of setting up a goal is we use the SMART acronym, which is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and timely. And so that will go through like what is the actual goal. So from saying I want to exercise more to something more specific, like I'm currently exercising twice a week, I want to go to three times a week. Is it measurable? Can you measure what that goal is? Well, the going from two to three, that's measurable. Then the other two, um, achievable and realistic, are somewhat um, overlap. I guess there's something feasible, whether you're able to do this as opposed to saying, I'm not exercising right now. I'm going to go seven days a week. Well, that might last for a week or two, but then other challenges may come in and then people get a bit disillusioned with their goal. And then the last one is, is key for time. And that would be when you want to achieve that goal by. So we know from people who try to quit smoking that when they set a, a quit date in the future, they're more successful at quitting than if they just say, I want to quit smoking this year. Hmm. Interesting. And when you talk about that, all of those make sense. The, the SMART, the acronym to, to make the goals, to make them work. What about results or if you kind of go off track? Because I think it's so easy at that point. Like you said, maybe you've taken on too much two weeks in. It's just not workable. And people can tend to beat themselves up a bit and think, oh, well, if I can't do it, I'll just give up. Most definitely. I think what you said is probably all of us have as our favorite pastime. We're so critical of ourselves, and that can uh, that that adds negativity onto what we're concerned about. On top of that, so it's common for what we call in health behavior relapse. It's common for those things to happen. You know, if it's looking at consistently more than you know dropping the ball, missing an exercise session one day, but, you know, you've stayed pretty good for the rest of the month. So those are the things that when we're looking at changing behaviors, whether it is health-related or, or saving money, there may be some sometimes that you, you fall back. And you just have to uh, go easy on yourself, recognize that this is part of the process. As uh, For people who quit smoking, it's common for people to quit three times before they're actually able to sustain it. So this is part of the process. And once you've had the goal set, an important part is how you're going to implement it. If it is an exercise one, do you have a place to go and exercise or are you going to do it outside? Uh, Is it something that you need equipment for? And things like that, uh, where it might take some time, where are you going to take that time from? Just like if you're saving money to for a special vacation or a new car, that money that you're going to save has to come from somewhere. So then you have to plan where that's going to come to set yourself for, up for success. 
And does it work too when we're talking about rewards or being reward driven? Like you just said, maybe you're saving money and the reward then is that you're going to be able to purchase a new vehicle or you've quit smoking and maybe the reward is you can go for a hike and feel great and still have energy after the hike. How how important is it to be able to reach and feel those rewards? Yeah, rewards are good. And just like the the goals and the plan, they need to be individualized. They need to be something that's meaningful to the person. And they're excellent ways to get started. You know, I'm a bit optimistic or idealistic that if people are starting exercise, they'll realize after a while that they actually feel better after, and that's their reward. But extrinsic rewards can can also help keep somebody keep somebody motivated and disciplined in doing it. So for example, okay, uh, I've been exercising consistently based on my goal for six weeks. I'm going to uh, buy myself some new shoes or get some, a new shirt or a jacket or something like that. Something con- ideally something consistent with the goal, but it doesn't have to be um, totally consistent. And would that work with diet then as well? Or because like you said, that it, that is such a common one as well, whether it's losing weight through exercise or through kind of revamping your diet, it seems kind of counterintuitive that the, the reward might be a donut or something like that. Yes, but, exactly. but we also don't want to deprive ourselves of everything that, that brings us joy or that we enjoy having from time to time. Yeah, and as uh, one of my colleagues said, the goal needs to be enjoyable as well in the process. And it has to be something that's meaningful to you. So hopefully people are picking goals that are meaningful to themselves, not because somebody told them they needed to lose weight. Lose weight because you want to do it. And it could be just because how you feel or how you look or because uh, you want to get some blood pressure or blood sugar down. And we've just been through the holidays and all of us I'm sure have ate or had more drink than we might usually regular time there. This type of thing uh, once in a while isn't going to mess up a person's diet, mess up a person's health. One or two days or a few days of indulgent indulgence isn't going to make a difference in the big scheme as long as, you know, you person resets, gets back to what they were doing before, and recognize that when it comes to food, it's really a tough one. But there is space for having a donut from time to time. (laughs) That is good news. What about the the timeline of these as well? I was reading about resolutions the other day, and the the article I was reading made the point of if you are looking for really fast returns, you may get that, but you're going to gain the weight back. Looking specifically at weight weight loss, if you want to lose 20 pounds in two weeks, it's not a very healthy way of doing it, and you're not going to sustain that. But we're human, and we like to see results as quickly as possible in so many cases. So how do you kind of keep the momentum going when it is small changes that are happening that are taking days, weeks, even months? Yeah, and so for something like weight loss, if somebody does have that 20-pound weight loss goal, one thing that we talk to individuals is asking them how long it took to put that weight on. And, you know, for some people, it's been over five, ten years, maybe three years. And we're not saying it's going to need to take three years to get that off. But it just kind of brings in some reality because you want to, as you mentioned, sustain that. You you know, some of us 
could go a week without eating and, and lose weight, but that's not going to be sustainable. And so that's where the plan comes in and how you're going to do it in such a way you enjoy. The other thing when you mentioned about the long term, so if somebody has a goal of doing a marathon at the end of the year, so long-term goals are great, but another way that can help keep that motivation, discipline going is to break that into short-term goals. So you have the long-term goal way out there, but maybe your, your first thing is to do the, uh, the sun run in April, so that's 10 kilometers, and build up from there and have uh, short-term goals that help you build up to your long-term goal. And that makes a lot of sense as well. Is there something, is it the group mentality knowing that January is a time when so many people make resolutions? Does that help people in that everybody's kind of in the same boat? Or is it not helpful to have this kind of, even though it is a new year, this arbitrary date where people set these goals? Um, I would say yes and no, and it depends on the, the context. Some people will set resolutions just because, like you mentioned, there's the expectation to do so. So then it's kind of something thrown out or somebody asked them. On the other side, if you're serious about what you're setting your resolution for, you can enlist that support. You can, you know, if you might know somebody who wants to exercise more, you can go to the gym with that person or, or start an activity together. Somebody who is looking to uh, improve their diet and eat more healthy nutrition and you can do that with with a partner so there's that sense that there's a lot of us who have these similar goals and we can work together and and have an accountability partner as we go along and do you think things like campaigns which we see every year at this time whether it's dry january or dry february when i saw the cancer foundation put that out or different groups again really focused on health and things you can do by setting a month doing something like that saying a month without alcohol do those types of of incentives work well some people might try those things and then realize yeah it's not i can i can do this And it might not, after January, people might start drinking again, but maybe drinking less than than before. So in the long run, that's still a healthy step in a healthier direction. So it helps. In that case, it gives a very specific goal that if people want to jump onto it and it's meaningful to them, then I think that that can be helpful that way. All right. Any other advice? Uh, do you have any other advice for people that maybe are struggling with resolutions or don't want to fall into that uh, big percentage that abandon them? Well, definitely what we talked about earlier is um, this is a process. And if you to succeed, you got to put in some time. But also, as you mentioned, to, we need to go easy on ourselves because sometimes things will come up. And they may be enjoyable and we might have to you know, push our exercise session the next day or you know, we have that, that donut. But it's consistency. That's the key. All right. That is good advice. Scott Lear, thank you so much for coming on the show, for talking about this today. Thanks a lot, Jill. 
Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, a sentence that was handed down in a BC Supreme courtroom is raising some questions. It has to do with a case, a assault, an assault that took place in a home in September of 2019. 2019. Now, the people involved in this case are being protected. There is a publication ban on the those involved. They are identified only using initials in the court ruling. But this is a case where a jury convicted one person of assault, but acquitted this person of sexual assault. But in the sentencing, he was given house arrest rather than a jail sentence. And some are now questioning and responding to this sentence, asking if that is the appropriate sentence. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Sarah Lehman, a lawyer and founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a a rather disturbing case in that uh, this is a man, a BC man, who was found guilty of assault. This was an assault that took place against uh, an ex-spouse, a separated spouse. It also took place in front of a child. Uh, He was sentenced to three months of house arrest, another 21 months of probation. When you look at some of the details of this case, what are your thoughts on the sentence that was handed down? Well, I want to make it very clear that I'm in no way involved in this case. And so the details that I am privy to are the same ones that the public are. Now, that being said, it seems as though there were a number of aggravating and mitigating factors to be considered by the judge when passing sentence. Now, I know that Crown was looking for a short but sharp jail sentence in this case, or in the alternative, a house arrest. Um, sentence, while defense was looking for something that we call a conditional discharge, which would mean that there would be no criminal record for this person so long as they abided by certain conditions of the court for a certain period of time. Ultimately, we know the judge decided to land on this, what we call house arrest sentence, having considered both the facts of the circumstances, or rather the circumstances of the offense and the circumstances of the offender himself. And when we look at this as well, and I know the judge in the ruling, the judge is quoting one of the quotes is is about that. And is it, one of the quotes was, it is not in the public interest that the, the person identified only as GM be discharged without a criminal record. So how does that kind of play in? So somebody, even though he's not serving time in an actual correctional facility, sentenced to house arrest, will this person then still have a criminal record? Yes, he will. This is what we call a community sentence order, or we like to popularly refer to it as house arrest. It is very serious. Um, It is essentially jail in the community. And people who have this type of sentence handed down to them will be under very strict conditions. Often they have curfew conditions which require them to be inside of their home um, for the entire day and night, or sometimes only to leave for, say, work purposes or for medical appointments, for example. Um, they'll also have strict conditions, uh, for example, not to consume or possess alcohol or any other intoxicating substance, um, and also to do counseling sometimes. So I don't know what the conditions were here. Uh, what the judge ultimately asked this person to do. Um, But what we do know is that that they will walk away with a criminal record and that this is quite a serious penalty, although it doesn't sound like one initially. 
And I think that's where some of the reaction was coming from or focusing on was this idea of house arrest being equated to actual jail time. And some of the comments people I saw people making were, well, is it really that much of a hardship when you've got streaming services, when you've got all of these comforts at home, which, which you would think would be much different than if you were in a correctional facility? Sure, of course, people have luxuries associated with their own homes, uh, but being on house arrest is not a walk in the park. Um, the person will be subject to some degree of community supervision. Uh, oftentimes, there are reporting conditions. Um, oftentimes, police officers will go by the residence and check to see if the person is there. Um, so, again, it is relatively stringent, and this is something that does carry a great degree of um, of a deterrent effect, in my view, uh, when it comes to this type of behavior and denouncing it in the community. In this case as well, we also are during the trial, the trial heard from the five-year-old child who testified in this case, testified that he saw or that the child saw the assault take place. And the judge also made mention in the sentencing, talked about regret and saying that he thinks that the regret shown by the the person who was convicted of this by GM, that that regret is sincere. Uh, how important are those parts of the case or how important are those factors when coming up with a sentence? Well, an expression of remorse can certainly be seen as a mitigating factor upon sentencing. Um, of course, having a child witness the offense would be a severely aggravating factor. Um, there are other things that I'm sure were considered by the sentencing judge. Uh, for example, you know, any lack of prior criminal history, um, personal circumstances of the offender in terms of whether uh, they're a person who is gainfully employed or of otherwise good character in the community, um, as well as the circumstances of the offense itself, which again, sound as though they were quite aggravated, um, but that's just one thing that needs to be weighed amongst other factors when deciding what sentence is fit and appropriate. And part of the reason, Sarah, that I was so happy that you were able to come and talk about this today was because one of the other questions has been, does this send a clear message or does this show that the courts, that the justice system takes cases of assault, takes cases of spousal assault seriously? Again, I think with, with that idea that house arrest isn't such a big deal. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the big misconceptions here is that house arrest isn't a big deal, but really it's the last before a jail sentence is ordered. Uh, so in, you know, kind of the succession of sentences that can be ordered by the court, it's definitely on the more serious or onerous end, um, just short of jail uh, in terms of what the court can do. And so I think that it's um, a mistake to characterize this as being, you know, a lenient or a light sentence, uh, particularly given my understanding that this person came before the court without really any criminal history. Would that change then? And again, I know this is a hypothetical, but but in a case, even a case like this, and and some of the the details that were given about this particular assault, uh, they called it a beating, a sustained assault. I know the victim talked about dizziness, about pain, about PTSD, about how she's afraid to be at home now. She has nightmares about this, and that kind of prolonged those prolonged effects of this. Would that be a factor then in a case like this if somebody was 
to come before the courts again in that in this case, one of the reasons, one of the factors in the decision was there wasn't a criminal record. Would that then come into play if this person found themselves in trouble again? Absolutely. Um, There is a criminal record and there will be one recorded against this individual for this incident. And all of those consequences that the victim is suffering, uh, those are all very serious and significant consequences. And they are things that are uh, considered by the court as well, normally through what we call a victim impact statement, which is put before the court so that the judge can understand how this event impacted the victim. And that, again, is a very significant and serious consideration that the court will take into account. And Sarah, one of the other things as well, when we talk about the fact that this was three months of house arrest, it's then followed by 21 months of probation. How much of a deterrent is that or how serious is it that somebody is also put on probation for 21 months? Well, then again, in my view, sends a pretty strong deterrent message. That's quite a long probationary period. And again, we don't know exactly what conditions that person um, is going to be subject to during that period. Again, they might be required to continue on in counseling. They may still be subject to a curfew. Uh, They're likely still going to have to report to a probation officer for regular check-ins and refrain from owning any weapons or firearms, for example. Um, There could also be protective conditions in place to make sure that this person stays away from the victim. So, again, there is a strong degree of intervention here, which, in my view, does properly serve um, the tenets of our judicial system in terms of sending a strong message that this is unacceptable and also trying to foster some degree of rehabilitation in terms of allowing this person to remain and enter back into society in a more pro-social manner. All right. Sarah Lehman, thank you again so much for joining us to talk about this case today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. My next guest is the founder of Clean Up Burnaby. Martin Kendall has been on a mission to make Burnaby a cleaner and a better place since this grassroots initiative was created. And it was created out of frustration during the municipal by-election back in June of 2021. Martin Kendall, thank you so much for taking some time and for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much. So born out of frustration, what was it that specifically got you to founding and coming up with Clean Up Burnaby? So um, for the municipal election, my strategy was basically to go around to parks with my kids and speak to voters. And uh, every time I would go to a park, it would be messy. And uh, I've got a little bit of an anxiety issue. And uh, when something is dirty, like a playground my kids are going to play on, I, I get very anxious. So I just decided to take it upon myself and buy some tongs and a bucket and uh, take five to 10 minutes to clean up before uh, my kids started to play. And I, and I found I've just felt much, much better about the whole thing and that, uh, you know, left was a cleaner community, which was a real bonus for everyone. No, definitely. Uh, how much do you think you've picked up or do you keep track of that? Um, so far in the last 18 months, I've done probably at least 2,200 pounds. Uh, I also organized five community cleanup events last year and they did another 1,500 pounds. So we're talking about 3,700 pounds in the last 18 months or so. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's great that, that you and others are picking this up, but that's also a lot of garbage that people are just leaving around. Yeah, it, it, it's honestly stunning once you uh, really look around while you're walking around how much garbage there is on the street. And, uh, 
You know, it, it, it's really frustrating. We live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And, you know, when you walk down the street, you can see cops and cutlery and all sorts of weird stuff all over the streets. And if we, uh, you know, took some, took some more time and energy to clean up, I, I think it would be better for all of us. What did what kind of a response did you get from people when you started doing this, uh, that you were out there and, and people, did they realize that you were a citizen who was out there on your own time, you've just decided to do this? Or what kind of a response did you get? Um, you know, in, in the beginning, it was kind of a 50-50 thing that, you know, 50% were asking, why the heck are you doing this? Let the city do this. And the other half were really appreciative and saying, thank you for taking it upon yourself to do so. Um, I think, you know, the majority of the population would like a cleaner community. It's just that necessar- they don't necessarily have the uh, tools to do it. And, you know, I've, I decided to take it upon myself and decided to make it a cleaner place. And I, I think, I, you know, the benefit, especially in my own neighborhood where I'm constantly picking up garbage that is we have a cleaner community and uh, it's definitely noticed and I definitely get thanked for it on a regular occasion. Which is great too. Is it also frustrating though because I think people do have a point you pay property taxes whether it's through home ownership or through rent there are city workers that this is their job so on the one hand you do think that there should be garbage cleanup in your city on the other hand you want people to stop littering and also if, if you don't do it then clearly this stuff's not going to be picked up. Yeah, I, I I can understand both points, but, you know, I, I pay taxes and I do like to get good value for my taxes. But at the same time, you know, with a city like Burnaby, it's 100 square kilometers, and that's a lot of area to try and clean up. Um, I think, you know, when you basically, when you say to the city, you know, you clean it up, it's kind of a lost cause there. I think the, the municipalities really need to start working with, you know, the homeowners and the business people in this in their area and, and saying, hey, could you take a little bit of the burden? You know, can you take five to ten minutes every week or so to clean up around your property. And I think if ever, a lot of people did that, we would see it would be much, much cleaner and we'd all be further ahead when it comes down to a community cleanliness. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you started doing this um, and during the pandemic, I understand you've picked up a lot of face masks. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. I, last year, I ended up picking about 1,400 of them. It's uh, pretty crazy when you uh, walk the streets and you see them in the gutters everywhere. It's certainly, and I noticed that too, and I'm sure many, many people have noticed that because it's kind of, or became kind of a new piece of garbage, maybe that we didn't notice before. You mentioned cups and food wrappers and that, and unfortunately, I think we've become used to in some cases seeing those, whereas the face masks were new. Sure, the odd one probably fell out of somebody's pocket and they didn't know that they had left it or that it dropped to the ground, but doesn't it kind of make you scratch your head thinking, who are all of the people that are just tossing these things on the ground? Well, I, I personally think that, you know, when it comes to littering, I think that, you know, 50% of the people do it on purpose and 50% it's an accidental thing. You know, it falls out of your pocket, falls out of your car or something like that. It is really frustrating just, you know, based on I'm, I'm a citizen and like to, you've always, I've always been a very clean person. And the fact that, you know, you can't take that garbage to a garbage can or that face mask to a garbage can is, uh, it's really frustrating to me. And we, you know, it's a sad reflection on society when you, uh, talk about it that way do you also pick up cigarette butts very few actually i i tried to start doing it in the beginning but honestly there are so many of them that um it would i, I would you know i wouldn't make much progress i decided that basically the bigger items are sort of where it's at um last summer i, I actually did a really thorough cleanup of the medians on boundary road from kingsway to 29th Avenue. And after about two medians, I was actually really focusing on the cigarette butts. I had done easily well over a thousand. 
So I just stopped trying to get that point, honestly. <laughs> Which is also a bit of a sad state. I'm not sure why it is, if it's convenience or why it is that smokers, in so many cases, I would even say for the most part, feel that the world is their ashtray. But perhaps that's a different conversation, a different cleanup goal out there. Um, you mentioned the median on Boundary. How do you pick where you're going to focus on and where you're going to clean? Um, in the last 18 months, mostly when my kids wanted to go to a playground, we would go to new playgrounds all over Burnaby, and that's generally when I'd bring my bucket with me. Um, and then I just, you know, I just, some, I just choose at random kind of thing. You know, I'm, I go into a neighborhood like Metro Town on a Tuesday and see some garbage, and, you know, on the weekend I'm bored, and I'm just like, okay, maybe I'll go back there and just uh, bring my bucket with me. And it's, uh, it's good because, you know, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape now because I've been doing a lot of walking and stuff like that. And, uh, I, it definitely helps the mental health. I'm, I, I find that, you know, I've been more cheery and optimistic and I'm a goal oriented person. So when I do I clean up, I'm, I'm usually very satisfied with the results afterwards. Well, that's great. And, and do you use, you mentioned then the, the tool that you use to pick up garbage and the bucket, and then do you just dump it in, in city bins or how do you get rid of it? Uh, normally there will be garbage bins at the parks I go to. Um, if I don't have that access, I live in a strata building, so we have a nice large dumpster and I'll just dump it in there. All right. I understand then as well that this is going to continue. And, uh, and again, sadly, this is a goal. I think that you could keep doing this for years and years and there would still be a need for it, but you have established some specific goals for 2023. What are those? Uh, well, on the personal level, I'm, I've, you know, I'm, I'm going to pick up 500 pounds of garbage this year, along with 250 face masks. It's a very easily achievable goal, unfortunately, but it's just something I, you know, I, I thought I would put out there. The other thing I'm looking to do in uh, 2023 is I'm looking to reach out to municipalities all around British Columbia and seeing if they would like my uh, expertise to um, help them have a community cleanup uh, program in, in there. I've, I've had some good response from some uh, communities all over British Columbia. And as the year goes on, I'll uh, start reaching out to council members and mayors across the province and uh, see where we can go with that. Would you like to see it become something, like you said, we're talking about big areas, whether it's Burnaby or Vancouver or Surrey, uh, parts of Metro Vancouver. Yes, we pay taxes and there are city crews for this, but they're never going to get to it all. There's always going to be garbage. Would you like to see it something uh, as, say, when, when the snow comes, people are asked or in the, the fall to clear the storm drains and to help the city out that way? Is this something you would like to see citizens helping the cities out, the municipalities out with garbage pickup? I think, I think when it comes down to it, that the city really needs to reach out to, you know, the businesses in, in their community, along with the strata complexes. And I feel those are two opportunities where they can say to them, hey, can you help us out? Can you go out once a week and clean for five to 15 minutes just to take care of the garbage around your property? Another place where I think they can uh, make a huge gain is, is when it comes to these property developments. You know, they have these construction sites that for two or three years, they come into the neighborhood and they... Uh, they produce a lot of garbage, and there's a lot of garbage that comes off their site and onto the side streets and stuff like that. And I think that, the, you know, the communities need to address that and saying, hey, you know, you're coming in here, you're building a large, large building, let's do it in a clean manner so, you know, all the neighbors don't suffer and have to live in filth for the next couple of years. And uh, looking on your Twitter feed and your social media posts about this, uh, there are vote for Martin Kendall signs. Uh, are, are, do you still have political aspirations then, or would you like to, to get a seat on city council and address it from that point of view? Um, in, in the last municipal election, I did run for city council, and part of it was for a cleaner and better Burnaby. I think this is something that most communities could easily take on if they chose to put their energy and uh, 
resources towards it. I, you know, find it really frustrating that when I went to city council multiple times and did presentations that a lot of the response from the people who have been in council for 20 years is that, you know, people pay taxes and expect their value for their money, but it's just too big of a job. And yes, if you try to, you know, tackle an entire city by yourself, it is too big of a job. But if you break it up into smaller pieces and say, hey, you own this business, you're trying to, you know, sell your goods in our community. How about having a clean business? Because it's been shown in studies that you actually sell about 10 to 15 percent more product because people like coming to clean environments. And I learned this through many years of retail, and I feel that uh, it's a real missed opportunity and something that's really easily achievable, honestly, if they put their energy towards it. All right. And Martin, just one other question. You've spent so much time picking up garbage, face masks, cups, the garbage and the litter that you were talking about. In all of your travels and covering that ground, have you found any treasures? Uh, not really. The best I've found is about a $5 bill. But, uh, that, but the homeless person that I gave that to immediately appreciated that. So it's a, yeah, unfortunately, Canadians, we, we're really boring when it comes to trash uh, just littering, honestly. We don't do cool, weird stuff that I see on, uh, you know, community groups in, in, the, in the States where they're picking up really weird and funky stuff. It's just, it's boring stuff. It's mostly just uh, cups and wrappers and that kind of stuff, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe 2023 is the year. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Is there a way people can find out? I know they can follow you on social media. Is there any other way if people want to find out more about Clean Up Burnaby or, or maybe doing something similar in their neighborhood? Um, yeah, if you go on Twitter to Clean Up Burnaby, I've got my uh, so my uh, Twitter feed that I do. Tr- I track all my cleanups. And uh, yeah, contact me through there. Uh, I definitely love to help anyone who uh, has a neighborhood that's really dirty and would like to organize a cleanup. I'd love to help them with that. All right. Sounds good. Martin, thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day.